0: We have been studying the raising of Lazarus in John 11. So far we have looked at the purpose behind Lazarus' illness and sudden death, the glory of God. We have looked at the proclamation where Jesus told Martha that He is the resurrection and the life. And we have looked at the proof where Jesus substantiated His claim as the resurrection and the life by what? raising Lazarus from the dead. This morning, we are going to look at how the people that were there, the people that witnessed this miracle, how they responded to the miracle, as well as the plot of the religious leaders. If you'd be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn to John 11. We will be focusing on 45 through 57. This is the last section of this chapter. John 11, verses 45 through 57. By way of context, Lazarus has just literally walked out of the tomb. He's been raised and walked out of the tomb, and Jesus commanded that some bystanders who were standing there, uh, they were to unbind him or unwrap him, and that's what they proceeded to do. And now we pick it up at verses 45 and 46. John eleven forty-five 45 and 46. Please look at them with me. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Jesus's teachings, you know, his preaching and the miracles that he performed elicited a variety of responses from people. If you look at the Gospels, you'll see people reacting to him and his teachings and his miracles in a variety of ways. In this scenario, we see two reactions or responses. First, many of the Jewish mourners who had come to uh, you know, mourn with Martha and Mary on the loss of Lazarus, many of those people would come from Jerusalem to do that who witnessed the raising of Lazarus. It says in the text that they believed in Jesus. The question before us then is, was this genuine belief? You may recall several months ago that I said that when we see people believing in this gospel doesn't necessarily mean that they actually were real believers. Some people had superficial Belief—a shallow belief, uh, an ill-motivated belief—and so these people believed in Jesus. Is this genuine faith? Is there repentance there? Is this the real deal? Well, there's nothing in the text or in the context to indicate that it was fake, that it was superficial, as in John twenty or John chapter two, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. You remember there that people believed in Jesus after seeing a miracle, but it says Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Why? Because their faith was superficial. It was just based on a miracle and something wrong. And so there's nothing in this text to indicate that this was superficial belief. The absence of superficiality and the direct contrast of these people versus those in 46 must therefore mean that this was indeed genuine belief that these people were actually converted. That's uh, one thing that I want to, to notice there, and second, the remaining Jewish mourners, the others who didn't believe, went to Jesus' adversaries, His enemies, the Pharisees, you know, those religious leaders. Why? To tell them about what He had done. They were tattletales. We used to use that phrase to describe someone, you know, maybe a sibling that tells on their, you know, their other sibling or something like that. Oh, you're a tattletale. So some see the miracle and believe. Others run to the Pharisees to say, "Hey, you ought to see what this guy's doing." But they're not trying to testify on behalf of Jesus. They are tattletales. They're trying to inform the religious leaders of what their enemy Jesus is doing. They were malicious informants who conspired against the Lord. So, two responses, right? The first was belief, the second was malice. Two responses elicited, belief and malice. And The interesting thing is that everyone there, if, even if you were just to take the, the body of Jewish mourners who had come from Jerusalem, let's just think of that group, and it was a fairly good-sized group, all of those people who came to mourn with that family, those who believed and those who didn't, they all witnessed the same miracle. They were all standing there. They all saw the exact same thing. They heard Jesus' words. They, they saw Jesus weeping. And they, they heard Jesus' command, Lazarus, come out. You know, those effectual, powerful words to raise him to life. They saw him come out. They, some of them participated in unwrapping him. They all saw the same thing. If they all witnessed... The miracle, how is it that some believed and others did not? That's a great question to ask, is it not? Why is it that this group believes and this, they were all one group, but it separates and this part believes and the other does not believe? How is that possible? Was the miracle somehow defective? Didn't have the power to convince everyone there. Well, no, external miracles like this do not possess the ability to generate faith in unconverted people. They have the ability to generate faith in converted people, to bolster and build up their faith, but they do not have the power. Something that's done on the outside does not have the power to make an inward reality in those who are dead. So the miracle wasn't defective. The miracle accomplished its precise purpose, to raise Lazarus, And to be used by the Spirit to convert these people. But others were left out of that, so to speak. You know, Jesus actually testified to uh, to a, a miracle in how it cannot bring faith about in unconverted people. How it cannot cause a conversion. Jesus Himself actually talked about this. So the idea of somebody seeing a miracle done by Jesus and automatically responding with faith is it's an impossibility. An external miracle cannot cause someone to believe unless they're already converted. And Jesus talked about this. Have you ever read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19 through 31? This is the parable we just studied in our Monday night series. This Lazarus, by the way, here is a different Lazarus. What is it? Jesus told this parable shortly before He raised His friend Lazarus from the dead. It's almost as if before He does it, He's borrowing from what He's about to do to tell a parable before He does it. Are there parallels between these two Lazaruses? Absolutely. In the parable, Jesus described a rich man who dressed to kill and feasted sumptuously every day and a poor leprous beggar called Lazarus who laid at the rich man's gate hoping to get scraps from his table. He was just constantly at his gate and begging and moaning for some kind of provision, please help me, I'm starving to death, please help me. And yet the rich man ignored Lazarus and ignored his cries for help, his pleas for help. This is a story Jesus told, by the way. The dogs that roamed the area they used to come and give aid to Lazarus by licking his wounds. How does a dog heal its wounds? Licks himself. When a dog sees a wound on you and begins to lick it, it's not because he thinks that's a little miniature tri tip that he's going to get to eat. He doesn't lick it for that purpose. Like, this tastes really good. I wish I could eat it. He licks it because he's trying to aid you in the healing process. This is an instinct of dogs, and it's it's a striking contrast to have a rich man who dressed to kill and who died uh, 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 dined sumptuously every day. He ate feasts every day. Every day wasn't just hey a hot pocket. The guy ate in extravagant ways every day, and you've got this guy that won't do a thing for this guy. But the dogs of the area will pay this guy some compassion and mercy by licking his wounds. That's the contrast Jesus is trying to draw. You have a human being whose heart is cold, and you have dogs, which were the worst animals on earth in those days. They weren't pets. They were feral. And the dogs, even the dogs showed this guy some mercy. What a contrast. Now, both men, in the parable, both men die, the wealthy man, the rich man, and Lazarus. And Lazarus is taken up to Abraham's bosom where he is comforted and rewarded for his faith. He was a poor beggar and he was leprous and had nothing, but he did believe. He had faith. And the rich man dies and he goes down to Hades, where he is tormented for his sins and unbelief. And the rich man, Jesus tells the story, the rich man catches a glimpse of Abraham and Lazarus in the distance and he begins to cry out for help he sees them in the distance and he begins to yell out to them, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus, you know, the guy who he used to ignore. Send Lazarus over here to to dip the tip of his finger in water so that he can come and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. Even now that this man is in hell suffering, he wants Lazarus to serve him. This guy doesn't get it. And Abraham replies, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from where you are. And the rich man cries out again, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment like me. In other words, can you raise Lazarus from the dead, perform a miracle, raise him back to life and send him to my house so that he can preach the gospel to my family, to my brothers, so they don't make this same mistake? That's what he's begging for. And Abraham replies, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. In other words, they have scripture. All the warnings and the commands are there. I don't need to send this guy back. They have what they need. They have the law of God. The rich man cries out once more, no, Father Abraham. But if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. And this is what Jesus says at the end of the parable. This is in verse 31 of Luke 16. This is Abraham's final reply. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophet's scripture, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see the parallels between the parable and what just transpired with Jesus' friend Lazarus with these people who will not believe. Jesus tells us in verse 31 that external miracles, even the most extraordinary kind, the raising of a dead person, will not persuade unconverted people to repent and believe. If the rich man's five brothers had witnessed a risen Lazarus, they would have remained in unbelief. They probably would have said, look, a ghost. It's Casper. How did some of these Jewish mourners react after witnessing the literal risen Lazarus? They remained in unbelief. And not only that, they went to Jesus' enemies to tell on him. It's not a matter of just, no, we're not going to believe. It's also a matter of remaining hostile. External miracles like this do not possess the ability to generate faith in unconverted people. No one has ever been converted by an external miracle. It's impossible. Were those who... You still have something happening here in the, in the narrative. Were those who believed in Jesus after seeing the miracle, were they somehow smarter than the other group? I mean... Why is there a difference between them and the others? What's causing the difference? Why did they believe and the others didn't? If it's an external sign or, sign or wonder or miracle can't convert somebody, did, did these, were these people just better at putting the puzzle pieces together? Were they somehow more spiritually uh, adapt, you know, or, or whatever, and they could adapt to the situation? They just had a greater propensity for spiritual things? Were they somehow stronger than the other group? You see, the the critics of God's sovereign grace cannot answer this question. They cannot say why some believe and others don't. They never can answer that question because they're thinking about it wrongly. Were some there more capable of directing their free wills toward Jesus or something like that while the others just didn't have the ability to do that? No unconverted people are spiritually equal, in other words, unconverted people do not possess something over their other their brethren, so to speak. they are equally dead in trespasses ephesians two one they are Equally incapable of discerning spiritual realities and truth, 1 Corinthians 2.14. They are equally slaves to sin, John 8.34. They are equally held captive by the devil, 2 Tim 2.26. Unconverted people are exactly the same in spiritual categories. They're all dead. There's no difference. So you can't possibly say that one group had some kind of ability and the other didn't. They were equal prior to that moment of believing. It is preposterous to suggest that that some unconverted people possess spiritual abilities that other unconverted people do not possess, and yet that's precisely the argument some make. Like some can bring themselves to repentance and faith, while others are simply too dull or distracted to do that. Well, if you'd just stop and think about it for a moment, then you'd see what I'm talking about. Well, they can stop and think all they want. They're not going to see what you're talking about. They're blind. The only ability unconverted people possess over one another is the ability to be more flagitious. In other words... Some unconverted people possess the ability to be more wicked, more sinful, and more scandalous than others. If an unconverted person has a strength over another one, it's just a stronger ability to sin. There's no spiritual ability in them. They're dead. Ephesians 2 1, they are dead in their transgressions. Some can just be more wicked and sinful. That's the only ability they possess. And of course, some can be better than others and according to worldly standards, more law abiding or whatever. But there's no spiritual pulse in one or the other. If external miracles like the raising of Lazarus cannot persuade unconverted people, and unconverted people do not possess spiritual abilities over each other, how is it that some of the unconverted Jewish mourners believed while others did not? That's the question before us. What caused them to believe? A miracle! You just said miracles can't change people and give them faith. I said external miracles cannot do that. There is a miracle that does it. It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. It's called regeneration. It actually converts the unconverted. It is an internal miracle, and it is performed by the Holy Spirit... Alone. And we talk about it here all the time. The Holy Spirit comes into the unconverted person, resurrects them spiritually, and imparts the gifts of repentance and faith. He or she then realizes that they are a sinner and they flee to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness, and they receive him and they believe in him as Lord and Savior. Verse 45 says that these Jewish mourners believed in Jesus right after they saw him. Raise Lazarus from the dead. This means that the Holy Spirit regenerated them at that precise moment. And the Holy Spirit works in God's timing and the timing is perfect. And He connected that miracle and that regeneration and all of that. And for those people right in that moment, it made sense. And they believed. What does that mean to the other people? It means the Holy Spirit did not work the same inward miracle in them. Well, that's unfair. No, what's unfair is that we've all rebelled against God. That's what's unfair. Not what God chooses to do with one group and not another. And consequently, or by the way, some of those people who rejected Jesus did get saved. They were regenerated on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached His message. The Holy Spirit came on them. So not all these people remained in a state of unconversion. What are we to attribute Who are we to attribute the credit to? These people for somehow believing after seeing a miracle? No, we give glory to God because God worked that out inside of them through His Holy Spirit. He regenerated them. He illuminated them. He resurrected them by the power of God. Some believed and others didn't. You know whose fault that is? That's the Holy Spirit's fault. So if you have an issue with it, take it up with Him. No external miracle will ever convert a person. But there is an internal miracle that does. And without that miracle transpiring, we would remain in our trespasses and sins. We would remain dead. We would look at the rising of Lazarus and explain it away like the liberals, liberal scholars have done through the centuries. Well, he was in a coma, and Jesus just woke him up. Now, the person who's been regenerated, who has true saving faith, looks to that miracle, and their faith is built up by it. And they see the power of Christ represented in that miracle, and they believe that that power is what's raised them spiritually to life and will raise them physically on the last day. That's what's playing out here. The only way for God to get all the glory is for us to recognize that we are dead and that unless He raises us. And that's precisely what He did with these people here, and that's precisely what He's done with you if you're a believer, whether you understand that or not. He must get all the glory. Now let's look at what happened after the unregenerate Jewish mourners informed the Pharisees of what Jesus had done, 47 and 48. So they get over and they tell the Pharisees, now look at what's happening here. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a the council, not a, the council, and said, "'What are we to do? For this man performs many signs.' If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, there's such panic here in this, these verses. They, they gathered, immediately gathered the council together. The council was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 71 leaders. It had Sadducees, a religious group, who were wealthy aristocrats who controlled the higher offices. They were more politicians than religious leaders. They denied everything supernatural, angels and resurrection and all these things. So, boy, if you wanted to go after Jesus on raising Lazarus, go to the guys who don't believe that's even possible. The Sanhedrin had Sadducees. It had scribes and Pharisees who were experts in the Mosaic law. It had chief priests... Do you know what the chief priests were? They were former high priests. See, there was a high priest that ruled over all of them. And when he retired, or was removed. He became a chief priest. So you had this whole team of chief priests. And then, of course, lastly, you had the high priest. He was the 71st member and tiebreaker voter. He was almost like the vice president in the Senate. When they are equal in their votes, he breaks the tie. That's kind of what he did. The chief priests and high priest were all Sadducees, and not only were they Sadducees, they were all from the same clan, the clan of Annas, And they controlled these powerful, very powerful, religio-political offices for many, many, many decades. This was like a political family that just would not go away. They just stayed in power. And, and when, when the patriarch died or whatever, the baton got passed to his son and then to the grandson and then they just kept it going. They kept it in the family. And the Jewish people and Romans were highly suspicious of this clan because of its money grubbing, self-serving practices. The clan of Annas was known for, for being self-serving and, and they exploited people. And the Romans actually removed and replaced a number of high priests, including Annas. They just did not like him, and they removed him from office. And they chose his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as his replacement. We see him mentioned in verse 49, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a master at appeasing the Romans, and he soon became Rome's golden boy in Jerusalem. They loved him because he just said all the right things. He paid them so much lip service, they loved him. And he stayed in office longer than any of the other high priests, including his father-in-law, Annas. I think he served in it for 17 years. That's longer than anyone else. The other guys, three, four years, two years, five years. None of them lasted because they ticked off Rome. Caiaphas was good at appeasing Rome. He stayed in office longer than them all. Notice the Sanhedrin's concerns about Jesus. They were in a panic. If Jesus keeps doing miracles like this, everyone will believe in Him. Well, obviously, they don't understand the sovereignty of God because a miracle just went down and some believed and others didn't. No, not everyone will believe in Him if He keeps doing miracles, but that was their thinking. Everyone will believe in Him. And the Romans will what? Come and take away our place and our nation. Whoa, what do we do? interestingly place refers to position it's not they'll take away the temple or they'll take away our city or they'll take away where we meet with you know for our sanhedrin sanhedral meetings you know our elder meetings it's not a literal place it's their positions of power that they're concerned about here And and nation has the same kind of idea. It's not, oh, they'll just take away the Jewish nation. No, what they're saying here is they'll take away the people we control. They'll take away our powerful positions, and they'll take away the people that we control. That's the concern here. The Romans basically required three things from the Sanhedrin. Keep religious fanatics in check maintain peace in public places, and do not carry out capital punishment without Roman approval. Those are the three baseline rules the Roman government that had overtaken the land had for the Sanhedrin. If you guys can do those things, please, if you can do those things, you can do anything else you want. The Sanhedrin could lead the people however it saw fit as long as they met those basic requirements. I'm sure there was a few more If it met those things and wanted to tax the people, like the bozos in Sacramento are taxing us, they could tax them. If they just wanted to raise taxes on the people for some reason, come up with a road tax that doesn't go to the road, sound familiar, right? My donkey got jacked up the other day. Can you fix the pothole? Yes. They earmark money for it and then they use it for something else. Sounds just like our people. Well, they're not my people. But if they wanted to tax, they could tax. If they wanted to impose new laws that strip away the people's personal freedoms, they could do that. They didn't have guns back then, but they had a Second Amendment. You got to give us your boomerang. That's Australian. I don't know where that came from. Give us the sling and stone. There we go, right? Or maybe it was this. I mean, they could, they could impose new laws, they could impose new taxes, there, there was nothing that the people could do. In fact, they could penalize you for not being religious enough, penalize you for being too religious, or penalize you for being wrongly religious. That's what the Sanhedrin did. Think of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. He was a Pharisee, and he was a ranking member of the Sanhedrin. Did he not persecute Christians? Acts 9.4? Well, they're not doing religion right. Get them! These guys, in so many ways, had a lot of autonomy and freedom. They oversaw and governed and led the Jewish people. The Roman government did not do that. The only thing the Roman government did was collect taxes, enforce those laws. Anyone got out of check, they'd crucify them. That was it. But the Sanhedrin governed the people. If you want a modern-day example, think of our Supreme Court. Well, they don't govern the people. Governors do. No, the Supreme Court has the highest power in the land. Believe me. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to only interpret the Constitution, but they, they do interpret it in a way that doesn't line up with our nation's history. But that is the parallel to today. They are This was a 71-member Supreme Court that oversaw everything in Israel. They literally ruled over the people. And its members here were freaking out. Jesus continues to grow in popularity. It could lead to political unrest, and the Romans could strip them of their positions and power over the people. At the end of the day, it all had to do with their primary God, the Almighty Dollar. Boy, if Jesus keeps going this way, let's just cut to the chase. Our bank accounts are going to get impacted. The last thing that the Sanhedrin wanted to do was disturb the Pax Romana. That's Latin for the time of peace in the Roman Empire. This would absolutely result in an intervention and the removal of the Sanhedrin's power base. That's why they're freaked out. Now look at what happened in 49 and 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, right, the son-in-law of Annas, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, now he's speaking to the whole Sanhedrin, look at, look at his words, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now here we see the plot. This is the plot. While the chief priests and Pharisees were fearfully discussing the situation, what do we do? The high priest Caiaphas interjects and he basically calls them ignorant. You know nothing at all. How did you get into office? How are you before me right now? You're panicking over this situation. You guys don't know diddly squat. And he chides them. How is it that you don't realize that it would be better for you, for us, for everyone, that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed? How come you guys can't figure this out? In other words, the solution is easy. If we kill Jesus, the nation shall be saved. We know how the story goes, right? Jesus was arrested and tried in a kangaroo court. And then he was most certainly executed by the Sanhedrin and the Romans, right? That's how the story goes. But do we know what occurred 40 years later in 70 AD? The Sanhedrin's worst nightmare came true. The Roman army marched into Jerusalem and destroyed most of the city, burned the temple to ashes, slaughtered 400,000 Jews, deported the survivors, and guess what? The whole nation perished or cease to exist until 1948. If we get rid of Jesus, that won't happen. Forty years later, it happened. Did you know that Jesus actually prophesied about that event? When His disciples were walking around in the temple courts marveling at all the precious jewels and gold inlaid into the walls and all that, they were blown away and Jesus at that moment prophesied about the destruction of Israel 40 years later and says, not one of these stones will remain unturned. They will be spun over and all the jewels will be taken out of them. Jesus knew. So, Caiaphas' plot was to kill Jesus in order to save the nation. And in verses 51 and 52, John puts a prophetic spin on this. Look at 51 and 52. This is John speaking. He did not say this, speaking of Caiaphas, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation (laughs) and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Wow. John tells us that that Caiaphas unwittingly spoke prophetically of Jesus' sacrificial death, both for the nation, that would be Jews, and for the children of God who are scattered among all nations, that would be Gentiles, you and I. Jesus' death will bring all of God's children, Jew and Gentile, into one church under one head, Jesus Himself. It's incredible to think that the high priest is prophesying this at this moment, and he has no clue. I love what John Calvin wrote as well as J.C. Ryle. Calvin said, Caiaphas might be said at that time to have, to have two tongues. He had two tongues speaking. Didn't even realize it. For he vomited out the wicked and cruel design for putting Christ to death, which he had conceived in his mind. But God turned his tongue to a different purpose, so that under ambiguous words, he likewise uttered a prediction. Isn't that cool? Now, I just want you to ponder quickly who Caiaphas is. He is the religious leader of all of Israel, and he gives this unknown To himself, he gives this prophecy about the work of Jesus. That's pretty amazing. Ryle said something really cool too. He said, Caiaphas, in short, meant nothing but to advise the murder of Christ. But the Holy Ghost obliged him unconsciously to use words which were a most remarkable prediction of Christ's death, bringing life to a lost world. Isn't that awesome? Now, how did the Sanhedrin, how did they respond to Caiaphas' murderous plot? You guys don't know anything. Here's what we do. We kill him. We save the nation. How did they respond? Look at 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. What does that mean? They concurred. Hey, that's a great, th- thanks for calling us stupid, but that's a great plan. We just kill him. We don't have to worry about it. The nation will be preserved. My bank account will be okay. My IRA will be in place. My retirement 401k. We're good. Let's just whack him. And from that moment on, they not only agreed, they made plans to kill Jesus. They agreed with Caiaphas. And you know what? They made plans to arrest and kill Jesus as soon as possible at the Passover celebration. That was literally right around the corner, just a week or so away. So they agreed, they planned, and the objective was to take Jesus out during Passover. And Jesus was well aware of their plot, and He took appropriate action. You know, Jesus never played into their game and always avoided trouble when necessary because His time had not yet come. Now, he knew that they were planning to kill him, and if they could catch him prior to Passover and execute him then, they'd do whatever they had to do. Primarily, they wanted to get him during Passover because they reckoned that he would be in town. He would be in the city worshiping as he'd been to all the other feasts. But Jesus takes no chances. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Basically, it was no longer safe for Jesus to walk openly among the Jews. His time had not yet come, so He left Bethany and went into seclusion with His disciples. And He says He went to Ephraim, which may refer to the Old Testament town called Ephron. It was located four miles northeast of Bethel on the edge of the wilderness, about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. It was a safe distance. During this time, Jesus made brief visits to Samaria and Galilee. He healed ten lepers (Luke 17:11 through 19). He told parables (Luke 18:1 through 16, 19:11 through 27). He predicted his death again (Luke 18:31 through 34). He healed a blind beggar who wouldn't stop yelling, "Jesus, heal me!" over and over. Jesus, is like, fine, get over here. Oh, wait a minute, I'll come to you. You can't see. Luke 18:35 through 43. He dined with Danny DeVito, Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 1 through 10. The guy has to look like him. It describes him as being really short, and he's Jewish, so he had dark hair and all that. It's Danny DeVito. I mean, he did a lot in this short period of time. You can read about these things in Luke 17 through 19. And in verses 56... 55 through 56, in our narrative, John skips forward and begins to set the stage for Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now look at 55 and 56. So I'd say probably a month and a half or so has passed, and now we fast forward and it's just right before Passover. Look at what it says. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to what, purify themselves, 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, well, what do you think, that He will not come to the feast at all? John does two things here. First, he informs us that the Passover was now at hand and literally only days away, about a week away. Second, he informs us of the spiritual climate of the people at this time. Prior to eating the Passover meal, Jews were required to purify themselves. The purification process consisted of ceremonial washings and atonements like small sacrifices made for their sins and uncleanness. And the Passover literally drew thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over that part of the world. They all descended upon Jerusalem and the city swelled to well over a million in population. It became so crowded, you could literally, barely, barely at all move about the city. And the lines to the purification areas and the lines into the temple were far worse than those at Disneyland or on Black Friday. It was just a, if you lived in this city, you you wouldn't have been happy, (laughs) right? And all these touristy kind of people come in and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't get out my front door it was a zoo. Now, thoughtful pilgrims, those whom John describes in verse 55, would leave early and get to Jerusalem about a week before the celebration began because there was less crowding and the lines were shorter. They could get right in and get purified and get ready for the celebration. And that's what John describes in that verse. They're coming, it's, it's at hand. Passover is right around the corner, and pilgrims left their areas and from Galilee or whatever, and they made the short journey. Well, actually, it was about 30 miles, but they made the journey and got into the city early so they could get in line and get their business handled. They were smart. And some of you here get to the service right before it begins. So guess what? You'd have been in one of these really long lines going, I need to be purified! And if you didn't get purified, guess what you couldn't do? Participate. You should get to church earlier. And we can purify you. Mike has a special device. No, I'm kidding. He doesn't have anything. He just pours it over your head. And, and if you got there late, man, forget it. You, weren't, you would just break God's law and celebrate it anywhere, so you wouldn't do it at all. So at this point, as Passover is right around the corner and, and these people are coming into the city and all that, the, the city was just bustling with activity. Pilgrims were flowing in, merchants were setting up, the religious leaders were performing their duties, and guess what? The people were talking about Jesus and discussing whether or not He would attend the feast. Well, what do you think, Bill? Do you think He'll come? Well, I don't know, Biff. Maybe, I doubt it. I always use these weird 80s preppy names, Biff. He played tennis, he has blue eyes. They were talking about Jesus. They were trying to figure out, do you think he's going to come to the feast? What do you think? Now, why were they doubtful about Jesus coming to it or not, right? It wasn't just that they were debating whether he would come or not. They, some of them were saying, he's not going to come. He's not coming to this. Why? Why were they saying this? Jesus had been to all the other previous Passovers and all the Jewish festivals. And John, he attended, I think, three Passovers that we can see in the the gospel. And I mean, he was known for going to these events and being present at the Feast of Booths. He spent the whole week there and, you know, he talked about himself as the light of the world in these things. He always took advantage of these feasts. There was a lot of people. He preached the gospel, preached His Messiahship. He, He was always at them. Why were they doubtful here? They knew that He attended these events but they weren't sure why He might not come to this one. Well, the answer is in verse 57, our last verse, the last verse in the whole text. This is why they weren't sure. It says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. There's the hesitation. People weren't sure if Jesus was coming because the Sanhedrin had issued a warrant for His arrest and put out a citywide APB all points bulletin. If anyone saw Jesus, they were supposed to immediately report his whereabouts to the Jewish authorities. If they saw you interacting with Jesus or holding back that information, they would put you out of the synagogue. Remember the threat they made. And that meant your religious life in Israel was over. Unless, of course, Christ gets a hold of you, then it finally begins for the first time. That's the threat. And so they were like, well, you've got police everywhere. They've got barricades. I don't know if they did, but envision L.A. riots with me. Not that level, but close. They've got all this stuff out there. They've got police everywhere. The temple had its own police force, and they were strong in numbers. Everyone's on high alert. Everyone knows about Jesus. Everyone has heard about the raising of Lazarus, and everyone wants to know what is going on. This guy could be the real deal, with the exception of some who were just trying to tell on him. But in any case, The city's busy, it's getting ready to host its grandest celebration of all, and Jesus is a wanted man, and they're wondering, is He going to come or not? I don't think He will. A smart man would not come because he'll just end up being arrested and executed. That's the line of thinking. And despite all this danger, Jesus entered Jerusalem about a week later. Not covertly, like in John 7, 10. Remember it says he went in secretly? With this threat against him, he does not enter covertly. He doesn't put on a ninja suit and creep in at three in the morning. He comes in with much pomp and circumstance, hailed as the king of kings. He hides nothing. No fear. Why? Why? because he knew his time had come. Whew. Closing. In verse 55, we learn that many Jews went up from the country to Jerusalem just prior to Passover to what? Purify themselves. They wanted to be ready for the feast, and so they went and and participated in in some rituals that that they thought and that they believed would purify them so that they could participate in the communion celebration and supper, or the Passover supper, not communion, pardon me. We think of it as communion because that's what it's become, that they, they could participate in the Passover supper, the most important meal they had. These people were entirely focused on aesthetics, on the outward appearance. Well, you know, uh, the celebration's coming, we need to get there early, and if I, if I go down there, then I can, I, can, I can have my body washed in the pool of Siloam or wherever, and I can, I can be ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed like that, you know, in that sense, and I'll, I'll look it, and I'll have the look and everything, and I'll be okay, and, and then now I can participate in the meal. In other words, these people had no concept of inward purity of heart. It was all external. Well, if, I, if I go down there and I do this, this, and this, then, then I'm okay with God, and I can go ahead and participate in this ceremony, or in this celebration, actually. How do I know that they had no inward purity of heart? How, how do we know this to be true? How, how can we say that they were merely ritualistic and thinking about the exterior, had no concept of the interior inward. How do we know this to be true? That's a mighty presumption, isn't it not? Because the same people were willing a few days later to do the will of the Sanhedrin and put their own Messiah to a violent death. That's how we know. That's how we know. You know, the same people that were trying to hoist Jesus up and laying palm branches in front of Him and hailing Him as King, our King is here, and crying out, Hosanna, 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 save us now. The very same people came down to purify themselves, went out and celebrated Jesus, and just within a couple of days they were conspiring with Jesus' enemies to capture and kill Him. In fact, on that Friday when Jesus was tried by the Romans... Instead of yelling, our king is here, Hosanna, Hosanna, these same people were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The hideous inconsistency of the Jewish formalists in Jesus' day has never been without a long succession of followers. The cities where Lent is kept with the most extravagant strictness are the very cities where the carnival after Lent is a season of glaring excess and immorality. You know, Lent is all about abstaining from certain kinds of food and alcohol, and people do this very ritualistically. But the very next week, they go right back. In fact, they, they get worse in their debauchery. That has never made any sense to me. I knew a couple that I cared about deeply, and they were big-time party people, you know. The husband grew and smoked weed all day, and she drank like a fish, and they partied and partied and partied and partied, and, you know, and just it was just one party after another. And, boy, but when Lent came around, oh, no, we got to walk the line. And I was like, well, I'm not going to walk it. <laughs> Duh. Could never figure that out. Then when it was over, they just went back into it. It never made any sense to me. I wasn't a religious person then. But it was baffling and confusing, and yet this is what so many do. The people in some parts of Christendom who spend a week fasting and abstaining from alcoholic beverages are the very people who spend the next week engaged in debauchery. Isn't that interesting? It must never be like this with the Lord's people. Never. Never. J.C. Ryle said, Let us settle it firmly in our minds that a religion which expends itself in zeal for outward formalities is utterly worthless in God's sight. The purity that God desires to see is not the purity of bodily washing and fasting, of holy water and self-imposed asceticism, but purity in heart. Jesus alone can purify our hearts. Religion won't do it. Asceticism won't do it. Lent won't do it. Attending church won't do it. Participating in communion won't do it. Getting baptized won't do it. Only Jesus can purify our hearts. If we receive Jesus and believe in Him as Lord and Savior, we shall be cleansed of all our unrighteousness and purified and forgiven. We shall be cleansed and purified inwardly, which is precisely what God looks for. But this does not negate our responsibility as the children of God to put to death the deeds of the flesh and pursue purity each day. Grace empowers us to pursue purity. It doesn't excuse our lack of it. Never make that mistake. There is such a lack of holiness and purity among God's people today. It's disgusting. Well, I'm covered by grace. I can do what I want. Boy, if you think like that, you've probably never even experienced God's grace. In fact, I know you haven't. God has not called us to be Sunday Christians. He has called us to be Monday through Sunday Christians. Sunday Christians are like the the Jews in verse 55, and like those who celebrate Lent one week and return to a life of sin the next, hypocrites. Are you a hypocrite? You come here to make an appearance, to make a good show, are you coming here because you've been purified by the Lord and you can't help yourself? You come to church. Because it's another place where you meet with him in his Lord in, in his people and it's where you come to worship him and to pay him homage and bring him glory. Why do you come here? Why do you do what you do? You must realize that coming to church is not going to purify your heart. You must realize there's nothing that we can do externally that will do that i I would admit I think we all play the hypocrite at times, do we not? We do. We're all guilty of that. But may we not believe or think that that if I just do this or I just do that or I just do this external act, or if I just do that, if I just behave like those people that were coming into the city, if I just get pur- I get purified, if we think that we get purified by going through these motions, it we'll won't purify us. We have built within our fallen DNA this ability to fake it. Are you faking it? Or is this real? I've met way too many Sunday Christians. They just come and make an appearance and fool everyone and then turn right around and go back to how it was on Saturday. Man, I hope that's not true of any of us. Are we hypocrites? We do play the role sometimes, but do we live in a perpetual state of hypocrisy? There's a difference. There's a difference between slipping up here and there and being a fool and living as a constant hypocrite. Boy, may that not be true of us. But if it is true, if we are a believer and we appear to be hypocritical at times because we engage in sin and make fools of ourselves, we, we, you know there's mercy in Christ. But if we're just doing it because we think those things will purify us and we're just living as standard-issue hypocrites where we're really not religious on the inside, we've never experienced conversion, we're just going through the motions, boy, you need Jesus too. There is mercy in Jesus. There is grace in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Him. He came to save hypocrites. Flee to Him, run to Him. Don't hesitate.